Hello, and thank you for joining us for this event on Who's Leading on AI Policy? Examining Recent U.S. and EU Policy Proposals Around Artificial Intelligence. My name is Jennifer Huddleston, and I'm a Technology Policy Research Fellow here at the Cato Institute. For those of you joining us online, I want to inform you that you can submit questions either via the webpage, Facebook, and YouTube, or on Twitter using the hashtag CatoTechnology. Needless to say, this is a very timely panel as we continue to see AI be at the forefront of various policy discussions, both here in the US, where two hearings will be taking place on various AI-related topics this afternoon in the United States Senate, as well as in Europe, where we see continued discussion around the AI Act and its potential implications. With recent technologies, and even before that, we've seen that the U.S. has typically taken a more permissionless approach, an approach that has been seen to encourage entrepreneurship and innovation, and really allowed the U.S. to emerge as a leader in the internet era. In Europe, we've seen a much more precautionary approach, one that focused on a more regulatory regime that was with several consequences, including for U.S. companies abroad. Will this continued kind of clash of visions uh, happen with AI? And what might that mean for this important innovation? As I mentioned, I'm joined by two excellent experts to discuss this topic today. First, we have Boniface de Champry. Boniface is the policy manager at the Computer and Communications Industry Association's Brussels office and is primarily responsible for CCIA's advocacy in the area of artificial intelligence and AI. He joined CCIA from a public affairs agency where he worked on both EU and French digital policy. Previously, he was a trainee with the WTO team for the European Commission's legal service. He has a master's degree in European interdisciplinary studies from the College of Europe, a master in French and German law, as well as an LLM. Thank you for joining us today. And then I'm also joined by Adam Thier, who's a resident senior fellow in technology and innovation at the R Street Institute. Adam's work has worked to make the world safe for innovators and entrepreneurs by pushing a policy for a vision that is rooted in the idea of permissionless innovation. Prior to the R Street Institute, Adam spent 12 years as a senior fellow at the Mercatus Institute, I'm sorry, Mercatus Center at George Mason in University. And prior to that, he served as the Progress and Freedom Foundation president. So thank you both for joining us today. And I would like to start by helping get some of our audience a, a little up to speed about what exactly we mean by what's going on in AI policy these days. Boniface, I'm gonna start with you. Can you kind of give us an overview of what the proposed AI regulation looks like in the EU and particularly this AI act that some of our audience may have heard about? Yes, and thank you. Thank you very much for, for organizing this indeed very timely um, discussion on the fascinating topic, um, AI and, and regulation. And as you, as you mentioned, so that there has been uh, a lot of um, discussions uh, in recent months in the EU, but also at global level. Um, but maybe to give a bit uh, more of context, um, AI is obviously something that's not really new and that we use in our daily lives, um, many of us at least, um, think of your, your voice assistant of, or your social uh, media uh, stream, for example. And that's why the EU actually presented its AI Act back in 2021. Um, so two years ago, which is a long time in the world of um, technology, um, and uh, to address uh, the risks associated uh, with AI, and so the EU's uh, approach to AI regulation was uh, back in 2021 risk-based, which means that a certain number of obligations and requirements would be attributed to um, AI uh, users depending on the context of their use. Um, so let me explain. For example, um, if AI presents an accept unacceptable risk, um, it's development and use would be simply prohibited. This applied to, uh, for example, social scoring by uh, governments, um, but 
can also apply to uh, facial recognition technology by uh, law enforcement, for example. So these cases, use cases, would be entirely prohibited in the EU. And then there is another category, which is much broader and um, which uh, encompasses all high risk uh, users of AI systems. This can be um, AI used for critical infrastructure, for example, so energy supply or road traffic, but can be also in much broader areas such as health, uh, workers management um, and uh, education, law enforcement, for example. And so the initial approach of the AI Act, um, as I said, was to regulate um, the use cases. And I always like to make a, an analogy with a brick, like um, a brick is uh, something that can be used to build hospitals and schools, um, but can be also thrown through a, through a window and cause damage. And AI is pretty much um, the same thing as a bridge, as a, as a brick, and pretty much every technology um, is can be assimilated to to a brick. Um, and so, common sense when it comes to regulating or to avoiding damage uh, from a brick would not be to focus so much on the brick itself, but rather on its use. Um, and so, this was the initial approach uh, of the EU. However, due to a lot of uh, media attention and the development of new innovative tools um, like ChatGPT, uh, for example, and other generative AI uh, tools, the EU lawmakers decided to shift their approach to focus on what they call foundation models, um, so AI models which are powering ChatGPT and other um, cutting-edge um, tools that we uh, now use uh, more and more. And the approach now focuses very much on the brick, so on the technology, which is uh, highly problematic and uh, also imposes very strict requirements on developers of such uh, systems. Um, the requirements are very strict and would um, yeah, basically inhibit the development and use of uh, such cutting edge technology um, in the EU. Um, and so, yes, recent developments show that uh, there's still a long way to go uh, for the AI Act to uh, regulate AI in a way that promotes uh, innovation while addressing the risks uh, that certain systems present in certain contexts. Um, and the idea or the aim of the EU is for one, to adopt the text by the end of this year uh, and for two, uh, to export its model um, to other jurisdictions. This is uh, very explicit in terms of objective, um, but this will, um, I think, very much depend on the, on the final text and on whether it uh, effectively promotes innovation um, or not. Thank you so much. Adam, you know, there's not been really a specific single kind of piece of legislation in the U.S. yet around AI. We've seen several different policy proposals. We've seen frameworks from the White House. We've seen some action actually in the previous administration as well. We've seen state and local policymakers considering various elements of AI. So there's not that same kind of one piece of, of legislation like there is in the EU with the, the AI Act. But I was wondering if you could just give us a, a brief overview of what does kind of current US positioning around AI policy look like and, and where do you see this conversation going? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks again for having me, Jennifer. To start off the conversation about where AI policy stands in the United States, it's best to start off with where AI regulation exists already on the books. People think we live in a sort of wild west in the United States um, with completely sort of an unregulated state of anarchy for AI, but it's just not the case. I mean, the federal government is huge, 2.2 million employees working at 434 different uh, federal departments. <clears throat> Believe me, they're all interested in AI. Uh, regulation as it exists right now on the books. It's, it's best to divide the world into horizontal regulation and vertical regulation. What I mean by that is horizontal means cross-cutting types of regulation. These can include 
things like unfair and deceptive practices regulations uh, or anti-fraud laws. Could include defective product uh, authority or recall authority. Could include civil rights laws, uh, child, child safety rules, uh, products liability laws, so on and so forth. We have a lot of those sorts of horizontal regulations already on the books being enforced by various agencies at the federal and state level in the United States. But then we also have vertical regulation or sort of silos of regulation that are sectoral specific. So for example, uh, financial technology and algorithmic uh, financial systems are regulated by the SEC. Uh, drones, uh, FAA, driverless cars, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Um, hiring issues, hiring algorithms, EEOC medical issues, FDA, and so on and so forth. And every one of those agencies is extremely active right now on AI policy, on the ground in real time. And people just forget that. But importantly, we're about to see a whole nother layer of horizontal regulation potentially layered on top of that. What's being proposed, in fact, what's going to be dropped today in the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee by Senators Blumenthal and Hawley, is a new form of horizontal AI regulation that would be general purpose in nature for a general purpose technology. <clears throat> it would basically create an all new AI oriented regulatory bureaucracy and then create a full blown licensing scheme of some sort for high powered AI systems. It would also uh, mandate various types of algorithmic transparency or explainability requirements. And then it would significantly expand uh, liability for certain AI systems and also pull back on existing liability protections like Section 230. That is comprehensive cross-cutting technological control. Um, and that is what's being proposed right now. Uh, it's not just for frontier systems, although that's the, the focus of the debate, the frontier high-powered uh, systems, but it's also for other types of more mundane types of uh, AI technologies. And so you see a multifaceted, multi-layer approach. Again, this is just mostly the federal level. At the state level, we have something like, according to National Conference of State Legislatures, about 100 bills pending as of last month in the states. Not all of them would regulate, but a lot of them would. But then there's the cities. You've got New York City passing AI regulation all of a sudden. You've got counties like Miami-Dade County floating uh, algorithmic regulation. So it's not just a 50-state problem, the much-dreaded patchwork problem of uh, technology regulation. Uh, it's thousands upon thousands of jurisdictions potentially just getting their paws all over algorithmic and computational technologies. And uh, I think that's where we're, uh, we're headed in the final months of the year here. It's a question of what we get on the books before the end of the year. Thank you so much for those great overviews to, to kind of dive back into something I was saying at the beginning. We've traditionally seen the, the US take a light touch approach to technology regulation while Europe has been much more regulatory, much more kind of expecting innovators to comply with, with various um, requirements along the way or seek government permission first. Do you think that this distinction is, is likely to continue when it comes to AI or are you seeing different dynamics in the policies proposed that may lead to, to new distinction or, or to um, less of, of preserving this light touch approach? And what might the consequences of these kind of dichotomy between a more permissionless approach and a more precautionary approach be for both innovators and consumers around the world? Adam, I, I feel like you started answering this in your, in your overview, so I'm gonna, gonna go to you first. Well, well, thanks. Yeah, I've done a lot of writing on this, uh, including in essays like why the future of AI will not be invented in Europe and, and other things where I've pointed out that uh, the European Union has created a real predicament for itself over the last quarter century. It's created a highly precautionary compliance laden type of regulatory regime for information technology. And it made a choice to basically put innovators, uh, information innovators into what I call an innovation cage and basically require them to beg for permission to escape it. Um, and as a result, you know, ideas have consequences and public policies have consequences. In this case, the public policy decisions made by the European Union over the last quarter century for information and communications technology has led to the fact that it's very difficult to name any leading global information technology company based in Europe today because of these heavy handed regulations and overlapping bureaucracies, kneecapping digital entrepreneurs and forcing a lot of those innovators and investors to come to the United States to get freedom in a more permissionless environment. The, the results of that have been wonderful for the United States. I mean, the economic benefits are staggering. According to the Bureau of Economic Analysis um, in 20, uh, 2021, 
The U.S. digital economy accounted for 3.7 trillion of gross output, 2.4 trillion of value added, uh, 8 million new jobs, 1.2 trillion, uh, 24 trillion in compensation for workers, um, and just created household names for American tech companies across the globe. Uh, America's companies are household names everywhere. So again, this is this is the real world results of the sort of innovation culture on either side of the Atlantic that we've seen play out. Uh, and I think permissionless innovation has won that in terms of economic opportunity and, uh, and innovation. But the United States appears ready now to potentially turn the corner and join the Europeans in taking a much more heavy handed precautionary approach to AI regulation. Uh, the EU is out ahead, as Boniface made clear, um, and it's clear that they're going to probably get something on the books a lot quicker than the United States will, because it's just very hard to get legislation done here in the States. But it seems as if we're seeing a, a shift in our innovation culture in the United States towards back towards the more traditional top-down, centralized command and control model of the Ma Bell era where we heavily regulated telecoms and, and, and media companies and broadcasting. And we rejected that in the 1990s. We had a bipartisan agreement to reject that for the internet and digital commerce led by the Clinton administration and a Republican Congress. That's the sort of bipartisanship we need. Unfortunately, the bipartisanship we're getting today is uh, Senators Blumenthal and Hawley and others like uh, Lindsey Graham and Elizabeth Warren introducing grandiose new regulatory schemes and huge new overarching bureaucracies for artificial intelligence and digital technology. So stay tuned. It appears that the United States is about to uh, turn the corner and I think a wrong one. Bonifaz, anything to, to add? I mean, I, I think I, I fully agree. And I think that this, this, this distinction uh, between the EU and the US, or at least from the EU perspective, I'm pretty sure they, the EU will uh, first regulate first uh, when it comes to AI. This is uh, very clear, probably already um, this year. And, um, and despite uh, the fact that we also uh, have a very comprehensive uh, legal framework applicable to AI and other uh, digital technology in the EU, from privacy to copyright, uh, product safety, um, and so on. Um, I think the EU will really need to define the AI Act's rules in a way that they really um, promote innovation. I don't think it's necessarily impossible. Um, companies need uh, sometimes rules, uh, but they need clear uh, rules. They need flexibility, uh, but they often want to know uh, what they can develop and how, um, so that it can be helpful. Um, but as it stands, uh, the AI Act is set to um, really hamper uh, innovation. And again, it will impact, and I fully agree with Adam, uh, European developers uh, on the one hand, but also European consumers who will probably not be able to access um, technology that is being developed elsewhere, um, simply because the, the requirements will be simply too high to roll them out in the EU. One of the things we've certainly seen, and, and Boniface, you touched a bit on this in your opening statement, and so I'm going to come to you first on this question, but much of the media and policy conversation around AI has focused on generative AI services like ChatGPT, or scenarios that seem maybe that they belong more in dystopian science fiction movies like Terminator than in what's currently going on in AI development. As you mentioned, AI has already been a part of many of our everyday lives for any number of years, whether it's the voice assistant in our phone, autocomplete or autocorrect, um, chatbots we may interact with when when trying to do a, a return or, or some sort of customer service task online. This has been around, you know, for for several years in ways that consumers may not have always realized. I'm wondering if you could speak to what some of the implications of the various regulatory approaches we're seeing might be on these less headline grabbing examples of AI. Yes, so the original, or let's say most of the AI Act doesn't really focus on uh, the latest developments. Uh, now 
certain requirements exist in there and they are uh, very burdensome. But for the rest, the AI Act focuses on this technology that we use in our daily lives. Um, but also, um, as always, the devil uh, lies in the details. Um, so, for example, if uh, the EU uh, wants to ban uh, the use of biometric identification technology, so the use of uh, data like your voice or your face, uh, for example, so biometric data, um, if this is banned, then you also ban voice assistance. Um, so very useful low risk uh, use cases or tools that uh, people use in their daily lives can be prohibited uh, where probably EU lawmakers want to uh, prohibit or to avoid any uh, form of mass surveillance in the EU. Um, it's not that we haven't seen any uh, developments elsewhere in the world, uh, which uh, might be concerning. Um, but yes, the EU will impact a number of very useful uh, use cases. Um, so I'm, I was thinking of, of uh, voice assistance, but um, I can also um, think, for example, about uh, um, think of uh, recommender systems on, on social media, for example, um, which would, uh, as it stands, be considered high risk, so subject to very stringent requirements under the EU's AI Act. Um, very basic systems, actually, for ride-hailing services, um, you need to attribute a task to, a wor to workers based on their location. Um, otherwise, it doesn't make sense um, to have or provide this service. They would also be uh, considered high risk uh, under the AI Act. So there are many flaws um, in, in the text uh, as it stands. However, autocorrect or mere customer chatbots uh, wouldn't face any uh, requirements or shouldn't at least face any uh, requirements in the current shape of the text. Um, only one requirement is worth mentioning. Um, it's the obligation for uh, any AI system interacting with humans, like a chatbot, um, to inform users that they are interacting with a machine and not uh, with another human, for example. Adam, I'm going to turn to you with the same question, but with a, a bit of context, not only what are we seeing in terms of some of these US proposals and the ability to, to um, impact some of these more underlying AIs that we've been relying on for longer than many of us realized when it became a, a hot topic, but also to raise this question of, is AI an area where we should be concerned about a potential Brussels effect? We've heard this term used in other tech policy areas such as GDPR where the because of the compliance requirements with the EU regulation, it becomes a kind of de facto global standard. Do you think there's a risk that, you know, while it's easy for us to, to want to say, well, maybe the consumers in the EU don't get this cool AI product, but we get it here in the US, is that also something that's potentially at risk in this policy conversation? Yeah, absolutely. The Brussels effect is very real and it, it has quite deleterious impacts on competition, innovation, investment, and, uh, and more. Um, <clears throat> you know, let, let's first, let's just connect the dots about how public policy affects real world outcomes of importance, because this is often lost and people talk about AI risk, but they don't talk about the opportunity costs of foregone innovations that could be truly life enriching, if not life saving. Uh, let's just, I'm just going to give two quick examples. The first is something that you and I have done a lot of work on together in the past, Jennifer, which is uh, the whole driverless car revolution or the potential thereof, which has really been a slow roll, excuse the pun. Um, but every single day in the United States, somewhere around 6,500 people are injured in automobile accidents and 100 of them die every single day in the United States. 94% of those accidents the government has found are attributable to human error. I have got to believe that if we could scale up uh, autonomy on the roads, that we could uh, put a put a serious dent in that that dangerous number and and create a public health revolution, if you will, by diminishing uh, the the staggering death toll, which is on the rise in the United States. Something I think over forty thousand deaths in the aggregate last year. It's astonishing that we've 
lost ground on this front. Um, this is where policies make a huge difference. And we only see a handful of jurisdictions being willing to open up to autonomous vehicles and allow for that sort of life-saving innovation to be on the roads. So that's an example number one. We've got to get policy right there because just in terms of the sheer number of lives lost and the, and the injuries suffered, uh, we need massive technological change. We're not going to get a lot more out of just better seatbelt laws at this point. That's not going to save tens of thousands of lives. It's good we have seatbelt laws, but the reality is, is that we need sweeping innovation. The other example is even more profound, which is stuff like uh, heart attack detection and treatment and cancer detection and treatment. Those are the two leading causes of death uh, in the United States and globally, I believe. Um, you know, it, cancers alone uh, take uh, 600,000 lives uh, last year, I believe. Um, this has been something our government has tried and many governments have tried for many years to address. We've had, going back to the presidency of Richard Nixon, a de declaration of a, quote, war on cancer 50 years ago. And then during the Obama and now the Biden administrations, we've had, quote, unquote, cancer moonshots. And there's a lot of talk and a lot of spending, and it sounds great. But the reality is, is that we're not moving the needle enough. And here we have a chance using the power of machine learning and computational technologies to really make a difference and change the world for the better by better detecting heart attacks and cancers before they happen, and then better addressing how to deal with them and treat them or maybe correct or eliminate them after the fact. So this is a crucial, crucial thing. And the, this is why public policy has to be right, because if you have layer after layer from the Europeans, from the United States, from multiple layers of the United States, piling up things like they call them in the EU, the prior conformity assessments. And here in the US, we have various names for what we're going to require in terms of like algorithmic transparency and uh, algorithmic AI audits and things like this. Well, it all sounds good on paper, but at the end of the day, it's paperwork compliance hell. It puts smaller innovators in particular at a real disadvantage. And the biggest problem with the Brussels effect is that it solidifies the power of just a handful of companies who are the only ones with the compliance shops and the lawyers who can handle these rules. And endless amounts of research have documented that danger, that just, uh, that terrible result in, the, uh, in Europe with the GDPR and subsequent regulations. We cannot have that model for artificial intelligence. It has to be more flexible, bottom-up, and agile than the kind of model that the Europeans have used with the internet. We need something more akin to what we've used for digital technology in the internet in the United States for the past 25 years. But again, sadly, we seem to be moving in a different direction. While we've talked a lot about these AI targeted policies, there are a lot of other elements of tech policy that may impact the development of AI or are already even potentially putting up roadblocks to AI. I'm thinking about the fact that we've seen some AI products already struggle to launch in Europe because of issues stemming from GDPR. Um, to, to either of you, can you speak a bit to how either existing regulatory frameworks around issues like data privacy may come into play, or if there are other kind of tech policy proposals that you think those who are interested in the continued development of AI should be watching that maybe don't have the words AI in the name. Boniface, do you want to go first? Yep, thank you. Um, I mean, in the EU, we, we have indeed, uh, and I was hinting at, at this uh, earlier uh, set of uh, requirements applicable to uh, the digital sector in general and to AI. Um, without mentioning AI uh, search, I'm thinking uh, of the privacy rules, the GDPR uh, in the EU. Um, we, I already have actually an example of the application of GDPR to, to ChatGPT, um, which has been uh, blocked by the Italian uh, Data Protection Authority, um, so temporarily uh, banned uh, from Italy um, until uh, OpenAI then uh, applied a number of requirements uh, and complied with the EU uh, uh, privacy rules. So that's a quite extreme uh, case, but um, there are uh, indeed a number of rules um, that are uh, relevant in the AI context and that must be taken into account uh, if, um, they, if a system needs to be rolled out um, in the EU. Yeah, Jennifer, to answer your question, 
in some detail, uh, I spent a lot of time, as I said, when I talked about earlier, the vertical silos where AI policy is playing out right now. There's so many of them, it's, it's hard to keep track of all of this activity. Um, but one of the ones that I drill down on the most is the Food and Drug Administration's regulation of uh, medical devices. And in that context, the Food and Drug Administration in the United States uh, has been regulating AI in some form for many, many years, actually, but not by name. Uh, it's been done under names like mobile medical applications, Internet of Things health, digital health, so on and so forth. At the end of the day, it's all just algorithms. It's code. And now finally, just recently, they've put out new proposals and proceedings on AI ML enabled health. So that's the moniker now that's being utilized for this field. But yeah, I mean, the, the FDA's history in the field of regulating software goes back to 1981. And so there's been a lot of activity. This is what kills me when I hear policymakers and pundits say, you know, it's a wild west, there's no regulation. Nonsense. There's tons of regulation. In some cases, we are severely over-regulating artificial intelligence technologies today. And so we have to pay attention to this and what Congress should be doing is having some, ex you know, exercising some oversight of what all the activity is happening right now in the federal government at the agency level, not all of which I disagree with. I wanna make clear, I mean, some of what the FDA is doing makes sense. Uh, and has to be done. Same with Department of Transportation with drones and driverless cars and EEOC and higher algorithms. Some of this needs to be enforced. But that's the point. We already have so much law. I mean, civil rights law is huge, a huge body of law. Unfair and Deceptive Practices Authority at the Federal Trade Commission is about as open-ended and comprehensive of a regulation as you can get. And all of these things apply to the world of algorithms. And so we're just not doing a very good job of having an accounting of everything that's happening right now in our government to affect computational and algorithmic technologies. And I think that's really the first order of business. Let's make sure we're getting that right before we go and create a whole nother layer on top of it to regulate AI and algorithms, which is a term, by the way, that the General Accounting Office has said is contested and pretty much undefinable. All these government reports and laws, none of them define AI. There was recently a US-EU effort to create a joint taxonomy or dictionary of like AI terms. It didn't define AI. <laughs> I, don't know how you, I don't know how you create a taxonomy or a dictionary about AI and don't, don't define it, but it's because it's so hard. And so it's better to take the more targeted surgical approach to AI policy. And we're doing it, but we're doing it quietly and incrementally uh, to varying degrees of effectiveness or, or sensibility. So. Thank you. And I, I want to turn to some of our audience questions. We've had many excellent ones come in. And so I want to try and get through at least a few of those. Adam, to start with to you, uh, I'm going to paraphrase this one a little bit just to, to make it clear cut. What do you think of these calls for a AI regulatory agency here in the US? Yeah, so there's a variety of different calls for different types of new AI specific bureaucracies. Some of them would be more research oriented, wouldn't be as bad as, uh, as others. Uh, but for the most part, what people have in mind is something akin to what they call an FDA for algorithms or a, a new federal uh, algorithmic accountability body or something like that. Um, again, they sort of ignore the fact that you have all these other regulations I just discussed. And it's like, how do these things mesh? They never discuss that. They never bother talking about that. They just say, let's have a big new agency. And I, I just think that's a mistake when you can already coordinate very effectively at the, at the federal level and in, in the administrative state through the Office of Science and Technology Policy uh, at the White House and the NTIA, National Telecommunications Information Administration, which does this sort of thing regularly, coordinates on tech policy and telecom and communications. Uh, that's what, that would that'd be the better place to start as opposed to a grandiose new whole cloth, you know, bureaucracy. I think the, the other problem here is that these bureaucracies would entail licensing power. And this is a huge step backwards for the United States. We really need to be careful. We've got decades worth of economic literature that has documented the extraordinarily the extraordinary costs associated with licensing regimes in terms of stagnant markets, you know, limited competition, restrictions on new entry, you know, cronyism. Uh, this is just the wrong path. The United States turned an important corner about 30 years ago, and not just for the internet and digital technologies, but for many other sectors, airlines and uh, finance and several others, transportation and trucking, where we basically said, we're done with that. We're going to relegate that to the dustbin of history and move along. Unfortunately, now we've forgotten that history and everything it entailed. And I should, I should point out to listeners 
that the reason we deregulated and got rid of those licensing rules and, and some of those bureaucracies is because it was Democrats who understood what a complete anti-competitive, anti-consumer fiasco it was. It took Democrats like Jimmy Carter in the White House and Ted Kennedy in the Senate and a whole bunch of others to realize that this was hurting consumers and consumer welfare and competition. We need to get back to that. We need to get back to understanding those lessons of history before we go do something really insane on the AI front, which could hurt us uh, in terms of our global competitiveness and geopolitical standing. So the, the next question, Boniface, I'm gonna, gonna turn to you for, first on this one, but it's a question about how one of the things we've heard a lot from this administration uh, is Jennifer, that they you're seem muted. to, can you hear me? I can. Can you hear me now? Okay. Uh, Boniface, one of the questions we got was about how the Biden administration has put quite an emphasis on uh, working with like-minded countries around AI. How do you anticipate that these discrepancies between the EU and US models in culture, in economic models, and in strategies towards uh, regulation may come up in, in some of these conversations between the EU and US on, on these issues? Yes, that's, that's a very interesting question. Um, and so this will happen in parallel to the EU's own legislative process on the AI Act. So the EU will regulate uh, for its own uh, region anyway. But it's in indeed interesting um, to see that the EU, um, as already Adam uh, hinted at, uh, actively engages with the Biden administration and the US administration um, as part of the Trade and Technology Council uh, between the EU and the US. Um, and here again, we, we see that uh, it's very difficult to, to first define AI, to catch up uh, with technological developments, um, and to find an approach uh, that would uh, be both uh, um, useful uh, for innovation and promote innovation and uh, on, the, on the other hand um, address certain risks. Um, we, we've seen also uh, very interesting discussions at G7 uh, level and I think um, they are worth uh, mentioning because the idea would be to create a number of binding, not bind, non-binding, uh, but guiding principles which could be incorporated into a code of conduct for, for advanced AI systems. Um, so their international alignment, um, guiding principles, um, and the combined expertise of um, like-minded partners um, can be something to, to explore and to, and to continue working on. Um, that's certainly a path, uh, an interesting path uh, forward. Um, whether the different economies uh, and uh, polit politics of the different uh, regions will be uh, problematic in this as part of this discussions. I think, uh, I mean, um, in, the, at the, in the framework of the EU OECD or G7 or to G20, um, these economies engage on a regular basis. Um, and at the end of the day, it will be the work of diplomats uh, to find uh, an agreement uh, on sensible rules um, that uh, would need to be implemented. Um, so yes, would be my answer. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. Um, I think that AI governance needs to be risk-based and outcome-focused. Uh, it needs to be focused, instead of being pre preoccupied with system inputs and design and sort of grandiose top-down preemptive efforts to control every for every hypothetical concern. Public policy should be very much concerned instead with actual algorithmic performance, not the underlying process. And if algorithms create harms in any way, shape, or form, and it can be proven, then we should go after them. And we've got a lot of bodies of law we've already discussed that can do that. And it also is good we have certain transparency you know, uh, standards. I think that's good. But the reality is, is that 
we can't make AI perfectly transparent or perfectly explainable before it launches or else innovation is going to suffer greatly and we're going to forego all of those benefits that we discussed. So when we talk about coordinating AI governance at a high level, it's good to start within the realm of best practices and sensible policy governance frameworks that are more flexible, flexible, agile, iterative in nature. This is what OECD and many, many other different groups and bodies have talked about. There are good models from Singapore and other countries that, where they've pushed, pushed for this sort of so-called so soft law approach or a more decentralized governance approach that doesn't begin with the presumption that AI innovators are guilty until proven innocent. It begins with the opposite presumption that they're innocent until proven guilty. But if, you know, we, we have some guidelines and best practices to start, and we also have some existing bodies of law, if they go astray and they do things that do cause risks or harms, then we go after them. This is why I highlighted things like unfair and deceptive practices law, civil rights law, and a body of law that I think is, is unheralded in this context, which is product recall and liability. I mean, we have product re recall authority on the books at the FDA, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, several other agencies, the uh, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and others that is already being utilized to pull algorithmic technologies off of the market that have some way, shape or form caused harm or been fraudulent. The FTC just last week went after a company in court that was making false claims about their AI products. This is existing law and regulation at work. And it's usually not, doesn't usually fall to me to be an apologist for the administrative state or a great defender of it, but there's something to be said for letting existing policies work and seeing where we go from there before we have this preemptive strike based upon hypothetical, you know, absurdities ripped from the pages of dystopian sci-fi novels and, and books and movies. That's where, unfortunately, the public policy debate is at today. It's just dripping with dystopian dread at every juncture. We got to move away from that fear-based model and move into a more positive approach that relies on a decentralized governance approach that doesn't uh, that doesn't do uh, that doesn't do harm to the the great benefits that artificial intelligence can create for society. So, Adam, that nicely leads us to another question we got, which is, what are the suspicions or concerns that you feel are driving, uh, particularly the U.S. policy position in a more regulatory? Uh, direction? Um, is it the concerns about uh, discrimination or, or disparate impact? Is there something else? Um, is, it, is it looking at what's going on in Europe? What do you feel are kind of the bigger, biggest drivers of this seeming increase in introduction of a, a more regulatory approach? Yeah, I've, uh, I've done some work uh, where I talked about AI policy and I, I identified seven public policy fault lines, like areas where I think that there's a lot of concern and that are driving regulatory proposals. Um, let me see if I can remember them. Privacy, safety, security, bias, workforce issues, national security, and existential risk. And, you know, you could go into any of those and we could have a long discussion and there's, there's discussions every day and hearings every day about those specific concerns. I think of those concerns, the general worry about AI bias or algorithmic discrimination is really paramount. And I think that's really what a lot is driving a lot of proposals, especially from the Biden administration. If you look at the AI Bill of Rights that the Biden administration released last year, it is very, very heavy on the, the supposed discrimination harms associated with AI. Uh, I think there are legitimate concerns there, but I also know that when these things are found, they are usually remedied or they're addressed. And we learn, we learn from these mistakes. And I hold out great hope that algorithmic technologies will actually help us identify as a society areas of bias or discrimination and then eradicate them, root them out. And so uh, I don't think we should derail all algorithmic innovation because of concerns about bias or discrimination. We should instead address it in a more piecemeal, uh, ongoing fashion. But uh, I think the other issue that's pertinent in a big way that is really coming hot right now is education and the second being intellectual property. And there are affected institutions, individuals and organizations that are getting very, very hot right now about pushing back against algorithmic innovators in, on the education front and on the intellectual property, especially copyright front. You should watch that closely because I think that could get traction especially the intellectual property stuff. We know from our history of the internet, while America had a more permissionless innovation approach in general, there's a lot of carve-outs for copyright and patents. And I think that's likely to probably happen again, although I have no idea how that's going to work.
I think we have time for one more audience question. And Bonifaz, I'm going to turn to you with this one. Um, I know we recently did an event on kind of what's going on in the EU and how it may influence, be impacting Americans and American companies. One of those policies that often comes up is the Digital Services Act or the, the DSA. And so the audience question we had come in is, do you anticipate the DSA changing this equation at all, um, you know, to, to kind of give you a, a little further opportunity to speak, you know, what, what are your thoughts on how the, the DSA may interact with AI policy? That's also a very, very interesting question. Um, so the, the DSA are the new EU's uh, content moderation rules. So they will apply to online platforms uh, across the board and Obviously, uh, most online platforms use AI uh, in their uh, recommender systems. So uh, what you see uh, on your social media stream is uh, recommended by AI systems or as a result of um, AI systems. Um, so there will be uh, some sort of interaction um, with uh, the AI acts. Um, that's also um, something to flag here is uh, a problem uh, with with regulation is that very often rules tend to to overlap uh, and um, companies uh, will have to to adapt uh, to different uh, regulations. Um, but yes, uh, when it comes to the DSA, um, I think that there are many uh, risk assessments uh, that online platforms must conduct uh, with regards to their uh, recommender systems. And this will obviously imply uh, that they look into um, their AI systems and the risks um, they present um, for users um, and regarding the content they show to users. So that's um, there will be some sort of interaction and it will be interesting to see how the AI Act uh, in a few years uh, then interacts with the um, DSA. But um, to, to uh, co come back to Adam's uh, comments, um, mainly to, in the US, but in the EU as well, uh, we have a very uh, comprehensive uh, system uh, that perfectly already addresses uh, many uh, of our daily AI uh, systems. Well, I know we're starting to, to need to, to wrap this up and I, we had a lot of questions come in and I apologize that we, we could not get to all of them. Um, but as a kind of closing question and Adam, I'm going to go to you first. What do you think the topic that's being most ignored in the AI debate right now is? And if you could, could kind of tell us what you think is being most overlooked and then also where people can find more of your work on the topic of AI policy more generally. Sure. Well, thank you for that, Jennifer. Um, well, people can always find me on Twitter, which is now X or uh, over on Medium. I, I write quite a bit about uh, AI policy. And then at the R Street Institute's website, you'll find my longer uh, reports. So the issue that's being most overlooked, I think, is really the incredible power and importance of open source AI technologies. And I really think this is something to keep the keep your eyes on because what's happening right now is extraordinary. I mean, what Meta did just two months ago with the release of its uh, Llama 2 uh, uh, model, it's a 70 billion parameter open source model and they open source that and gave it to the world. And incredible things are happening there, but uh, also the incredible competition we face from uh, the UAE, which has just released the latest iteration of its Falcon open source model, which is uh, Falcon 180B with Neo 180 stands for 180 billion parameters. So in, in just uh, just a short period of time, they now have a model that's two and a half times the size of Meta's Llama model. That's incredible, right? That's incredible international competition, which points to my second thing that's being overlooked, international competitiveness and the geopolitical ramifications of getting AI policy right. It is absolutely crucial. Uh, and the list of the 500 most powerful supercomputers in the world, China dominates the list. It, it now sits at 227 of the top 500, 500 uh, supercomputers. That's up from 219 just six months ago. Meanwhile, the United States share of supercomputers glo uh, globally is now at an all-time low at 118. We're still second, but it's not good that we're falling rapidly. 
And we need to understand there are massive geopolitical significant uh, ramifications associated with this to make sure we have a strong technological base. Begins with making sure we do not kneecap our best and brightest innovators and talented people who are innovating in an, in an important way in the algorithmic space right now. So this needs to be front and center. I think the entire debate over AI can be recast as in many ways a debate about geopolitical competition and security. And uh, once it does, we need to, then we should understand that things like grandiose new regulatory schemes and licensing mandates and bureaucracies is not the way to make America stronger. Thank you. Thank you. Bonifaz, same question to you. What do you think is kind of the, the currently most overlooked or most ignored issue in the debates around AI and where can folks find out more about your work on this topic? Thank you. Um, so I would say there are, and I fully also agree uh, with what, what Adam um, was just saying. Um, I think there, are, there is also a lack of discussion on the benefits uh, of AI, uh, be it in the uh, health sector or for example, also in the fight against uh, climate change. Uh, I see more debates at maybe at international level uh, on this, or at least it's more present in the discussions, uh, but far less at regional or nat national level. Um, and I think that's uh, definitely uh, missing uh, here. And um, I also think that we should be better, more aware, or at least in the debate, that um, AI should not be assimilated to humans or, or anything like that. Uh, it's not going to replace us. It's a mere technological tool, certainly a powerful one, uh, but um, it's it's a tool and it can be used in, in different contexts uh, for the uh, for the best and, and in, in certain instances uh, in negative way. And that's, that's what uh, should be the, the focus um, of the debate um, in my perspective. And uh, you can find uh, our work uh, on ccianet.org and uh, also on our uh, project Disco website where we regularly publish uh, blog posts also on AI and, and many other uh, fascinating topics. Well, and in many ways, this conversation is just beginning. I know we are anticipating not only further potential actions both in the EU and in the US, but we're also seeing um, a potential US-UK uh, summit around AI that is expected this fall. So I certainly look forward to continuing conversations about what the potential benefits of AI may be, how AI policies may impact the innovation and development, what all this means for kind of the, the geopolitical discourse as, as Adam alluded to and, and much, much more. I wanna thank our panelists and our audience for attending today. As I mentioned, we had a lot of really good questions come in and unfortunately we are not able to get to all of them. Uh, there will be a video recording of this event available on Cato's website. And thank you all for, for being part of this conversation.